When you talk about self-awareness, like how does one begin to evolve on that journey? How, where does one start and what are some practical uh, ideas or steps one can take to become more self-aware and ultimately more conscious of who they really are? Great question. I, I would say there's a couple of, of practical steps straight off the bat. The first is to recognize what's not working. Yeah, So many people are not happy where they are right now. And so what do they do? They complain about what it is, or they try something new that they don't really shift anything else. The fastest way for you to be able to shift is to upgrade your peer group. Now, we operate under the law of conformity. If you hang out with 10 recreational drug users, I've got news for you. You're probably going to become the 11th. If you hang out with 10 people that come from a place of you know how we can, self-motivated, not why we can't, you're probably going to become the 11th. It's the law of conformity. So the first question is check your peer group. Who do you hang with? You know, love your family, choose your friends. And if you don't have anyone in proximity, we live in a world now where yeah, I'm currently hanging out with you, even though you know, I'm in Acapulco in Mexico right now and you're in South Africa. Now, uh, hang out with who do you listen to? Yeah, what, what are you feeding your mind with? What well are you drinking from? The well of you know, why life doesn't work or the well of possibility, right? There's no excuse today. Why? Because in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. Hello, Terry speaking. Hi, I heard you guys have a position available at your company. Yes, we do. Which position are you looking to fill? Well, I'm a really successful Instagram model, and I was hoping to apply for the data modeling job. I just love the runway. <sighs> As a technology company, if you are struggling to explain technology to your customers, you need the help of a storytelling production company. Get to market quickly, effectively, and affordably using a lightning strike campaign designed specifically for tech businesses. Digital Kung Fu. It's time to tell your story. Hardships. Hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary lives. But what happens when you put a non-criminal and one of the world's top experts in personal growth into one of the toughest prisons in the UK? In 2017, that's exactly what happened to Peter Sage, well-known international and serial entrepreneur, author, philosopher, and teacher, when during a civil matter, he was found in contempt of court. That's when Peter did the extraordinary thing, deciding that he was not a prisoner, but a secret agent of change. What unfolded next both transformed the lives of his fellow inmates and has also become a masterclass in how to turn adversity to your advantage. In this episode of The Matt Brown Show, we discuss Peter's book, The Inside Track, an inspirational guide to conquering adversity, a compilation of the 11 letters he wrote to his elite coaching students from the confines of his prison cell. So without further ado, enter Peter Sage. How's it, guys? Welcome back to The Matt Brown Show. Thanks to our live uh, YouTube audience for being here today. You'll notice we're doing a VC with our guest today, who is none other than an entrepreneur firstly, but also an author and just a hustler that's doing some really rad stuff. He's been on London Real. He's been shopping his story around uh, many uh, kind of high reputational sort of high value uh, podcasts and stuff like that. So I'm very privileged and honored to have Peter Sage with me in the studio today. Welcome, Peter. Matt, absolute pleasure. Great to be here. Awesome, bud. Well, look, um, so for those of you who don't know who Peter Sage is, um, we're actually going to dive into his latest book. It's called The Inside Track, An Inspirational Guide to Conquering Adversity. And as 
entrepreneurs, we all know how we have to deal with adversity every single day. So, um, Peter, before we dive into the meat and the potatoes, what's the headline backstory that you want to share with, uh, with our viewers and listeners? Great question. Well, this isn't a, a normal book. This is actually the 11 letters that I wrote from jail two years ago as the only non-criminal in Britain's toughest jail. And this is a great lesson for, for a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, not in terms of the content of the book, but the backstory to it, which I'll give a, a very high-level cliff note on. I was um, I was arguing a business deal in court. You know, we live in a very litigious society these days, and I'd done some business with a, a large multinational a few years before. Bought $12 million worth of goods, paid for it in full, resold it at a small margin. And six years later, this company knocks on my door with a bunch of lawyers freezing my assets and uh, suing me for $17 million. And I'm like, what's that about? And they're like, well, we didn't know you were going to resell the equipment. I'm like, well, you didn't give me a contract saying we couldn't. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they said, well, look, it's not really about going to court over this. Give us a hundred grand. We'll make it all go away. And that's when I realized that, you know, people with big money have uh, usually better lawyers and I didn't play ball. So they, they sued me for contempt saying to the judge I'd breached the freezing order I thought it was a chess move. Yeah, litigation in business these days is a tool. Uh, I didn't take it that seriously. I found out well, how court works, and uh, the judge gave me six months inside as a non-criminal in the most violent jail in England. And, um, yeah, I ended up going from 53 staff to you know, three staff in three weeks, lost my business, lost a lot of stuff, but uh, decided that on that journey, Matt, I would take my high-level coaching clients with me and write to them every two weeks, basically showing them what I was doing and how I was coping with what became one of the greatest adventures I'd ever lived. Mm. And when it was looking like it was going the wrong way, my, my fiance turned to me at the time and said, this, this looks like you know, we could lose this. And I'm like, yeah, I could even go on holiday here. And she said, why is this happening? And I said, well, I don't know, but here's what I do know. I've been very fortunate for the last 20 years that uh, millions of people around the world have benefited from the work that I share. Yeah. But uh, a lot of those people that probably could benefit probably never get to see my work because they're in somewhere like prison. So if the universe wants to send me somewhere where I can really help people, let me go do my work. And so I never went in as a prisoner. I went in as a secret agent of change. Sure. That's quite a pitch. Um, that's a, I love this kind of story. We had um, – where's old Rusty? So this chap here, uh, Rusty Labuskakni, uh, he was in, falsely imprisoned for 10 years for a murder he didn't commit. And it's, uh, I love these kind of stories because they're such a, they're such human stories. Um, and how, like, he, he has that similar type of philosophy to you where, he he acknowledged what was happening to him was beyond his control in many respects, um, and uh, and he had to make the most of that. And and in the process of, I mean, it was it's not easy. I mean, how long were you in prison for? Uh, I did I did six months yeah, okay. as a, as a non criminal. Never okay. been arrested, never been accused of a crime, still don't have a criminal record. Mm. Either way, <laughs> I don't want to be in prison for one day. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's park that one. But, um, but going back to your kind of motivations, where did you find it within yourself to actually make this something positive and not go like, you know, fuck this, this is actually something that's beyond my control and I can't believe this is happening to me and become, you know, the person where he's not at effect and not at cause? Yeah. Well, victim mode is, is, a, uh, is a mode of thinking that doesn't serve anybody. 
Yeah, nowhere in the universe is victim mode rewarded. And so, yeah, having taught positive psychology for the last 20 years uh, plus, I thought, what, what an outstanding case study yeah, that I could actually use this to demonstrate to my students that it doesn't matter what happens to you in life. Yeah, it only matters to what you do with what happens in life. And so literally when I went in, the, the first thing that the, the first prison officer said to me that was giving me my clothes, he says, ah, excuse me, he says, are you a police officer? I'm like, no, please don't give me that label going in, you know. And then I sit in the waiting room and I go for my medical before they give me my cell. And the doctor and I are talking and he, and he stops halfway through his sentence. He says, hang on. He says, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah. He says, are you undercover? And I'm like, <laughs> I started laughing. And I said, you're the second person that's kind of asked that. May I ask why you asked the question? He said, I've never seen anybody so happy on their first ever day in prison. And uh, I started sharing with him what I thought, why I thought I was there, you know, and I said, look, you can't control, you can never control what happens to you in life to an extent. You can only control what you do and your reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm here to help people. And, you know, I'm very blessed that from that moment on, magic started unfolding. You know, the first time they gave me my cell, I, I walked in and I've got this tiny little room and I'm with an Asian guy from Bangladesh and he looks like his world has fallen apart. And it turns out that he went to court that day to get a date for his trial. He parked outside in a no parking zone. He ran into court to get a date and the judge remanded him until the trial. Wasn't expecting it. And that wasn't as bad as the fact he'd spent his life savings on getting married the next day. And so he was like completely through the floor. And I went in and I walked into this cell first and I'm seeing things that you only ever see on TV, right? I'm like, wow, I've never been inside a jail before. And I stop and I go, oh, my God, this is amazing. And he almost bumps into me at the back. He says, well, why what? I've gone, they've given us our own meditation room with a toilet. Right? And, it, and he thinks I've lost it. By the end of the two days we spent together, those first two days before I got moved into a different cell, he, uh, his last comment made my magic moments list. You know, I kept a magic moments list while I was in there. And he said, you know, I came to jail two days ago thinking my world had fallen apart. Now I know I came to jail to meet you. And yeah, and that was the first kind of intervention that I'd done. And from there, it just went crazy. I mean, I, within two weeks, I'm the unofficial prison social worker. Uh, I'm, I'm getting people off drugs. I'm stopping suicides. You know, I wrote a, uh, a short story that I thought could affect a lot more people than the one-on-one. -on -one. And I went to, I went to business. Uh, uh, they put me in the business class, which I, I re yeah, obviously I did in record time. And I said to them, if I finish the business studies course sooner than the two months, can I use the computer to type up a story I think will help other prisoners? Mm. And the teacher said, well, yeah, sure. Okay. Not expecting anything. I completed it in 10 days. And I wrote this story, Matt, called Mud or Stars. And it was taken after the old saying, two men sat behind prison bars. One saw mud, the other saw stars. And it's really about, again, how your environment never defines you. Mm. It simply gives you the opportunity to define yourself. And, and I, I printed 50 copies when they weren't looking and I distributed them through the jail like a secret mailman. And within a couple of days, you could actually hear the prisoners shouting to each other, mud or stars to cheer them up. They put me in solitary for seven weeks for that. They can't, they banned me from <laughs> education and, and, and everything else, but it started a movement. 
And I won a national award while I was in there. I got letters of commendation from the governors, from the prison officers. I reduced violence in the wings. Um, it's, it was just an incredible opportunity to demonstrate the power of positive thinking yeah. uh, and how to be practical with that. And, and each two weeks I was writing to my students basically saying, here's how I'm doing it. Here's how I'm breaking it down. Here's how you stop a suicide. You know, here's how you get people off drugs. Here's how you give meaning to people who don't have meaning. Here's how you bring hope to somebody who has no compelling future and so it's part journal part how-to manual part you couldn't make it up but it was real and and yeah i i was essentially on location for six months filming the prison scene of my movie that's how i saw it <laughs> oh well i'm glad you did <laughs> but uh, you mentioned uh, a magic moments list what were, what other moments were on that list stay with us we'll be right back Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, I mean, so many. I when I came out, the, the the last magic moment was obviously walking out of the gates. Yeah, and I had uh, uh, I I don't know if I call it a coming out party because that has different connotation to it. But yeah, I <laughs> I had uh, I had all my my my, uh, my friends, my fans, my dogs, a lot of people that came to me. That was magic moment number two hundred. Now I'll tell you, I'll share with you magic moment number one hundred ninety nine. The night before I was released, I finally after six weeks got to an open. Uh, for the last six weeks of my sentence, got to an open jail, which is where I should have been. But for four and a half months, they kept me in Pentonville. But in the open prison, I was kind of unleashed. You know, I got a lot more uh, freedom to, to work with the prisoners. And I was trying to get mud or stars um, into the hands of all the new prisoners that came to jail that day, uh, you know, on uh, each day. And so I was working with the, the new prisoner induction orderly, but he was a cokehead. Yeah, I mean, drugs in prison were rife to order anything you wanted when you wanted crack, heroin, spice. It, it didn't matter. You could get whatever you wanted. It was incredible. And so the new prisoner, uh, the guy who was the prisoner, because the prisoners ran the jail. Yeah, the prisoner uh, who was in charge of taking the new prisoners to their cells, he didn't want to know. He was too high on cocaine most days. So anyway, I'm doing the last round of my night before I'm released. And I'm walking around the grounds and a guy comes up to me. And he says, excuse me, you, you Peter Sage. He says, yeah. he says, did you write Muddle Stars? Because I'd been going and, and handing them out to the new prisoners every day. I says, yeah, that's right. He says, oh, would you come to my cell and sign my copy? And I'm like, well, look, I wrote it anonymously. Yeah, it's, it, it's not about me. He says, well, no, I know, but it would mean a lot. I'm like, okay. So I go to his cell and he shares his story. And this was a guy in his 60s that he, when he was younger, he had two twin boys. And then he separated from his wife, uh, was estranged. Never got to see his boys growing up. She was very angry and, and put a lot of the poison in, if you know. And so he grew up with a lot of guilt about not being there as a father. 
one of the boys grew up to be a major drug dealer. He got caught and the dad said, oh, wow, this is a way for me to be able to go and be there for my son. And he took the rap for essentially a crime he didn't commit. And he said, I learned a lot from that. His son never said thank you. He never came to see him. He never helped his new wife financially. And he said, I realized all I was doing was buying off my guilt of not being there as a father. And it had nothing to do with actually being there for my son. And he's still got another three years to serve on his sentence, got six years. He said, but look, I read Mud or Stars and it had such an impact. He said, I've become the new prisoner induction orderly yesterday. Would you mind if I photocopied this and gave it to every new prisoner that comes in? Because I think it would make such a difference. And what I've been trying to do since the day I got there happened the night before I was released. And that was magic moment number 199. That's amazing, man. That's incredible. Tell me something. Um, how do you, you mentioned you, I mean, I suppose when you're in prison, you kind of lose a lot, a lot of your motivation and your sense of meaning as an individual. Um, you mentioned that you somehow managed to give prisoners meaning despite their circumstances being by all accounts quite hopeless for at least for a period of time. Um, can you walk us through how you do that? How does one find meaning when they feel like they've lost hope? Sure. Great question. Uh, well, for a start, one of the things that had the most impact or had a, a big impact, should I say, um, was teaching the prisoners the difference initially between freedom and liberty, because the two are very different. See, the only thing that they'd restricted with me was my liberty. Right? They'd reduced my decision space. I got a, a smaller decision space. I couldn't choose to go to the supermarket. I couldn't choose to go walk my dogs. But freedom is a state of mind. Nobody can take that away. I was freer in my little cell than the prison guards coming to work every day that didn't enjoy what they were doing or had marriage problems. And so uh, one of the, the ways to be able to engender hope is to give meaning. And so one of the guys that I met was a murderer. His name was Brad. I, I write about him in, in chapter 10. And he essentially uh, was had stabbed somebody in a bar fight when he was 20 uh, one years old, and he'd served 22 years already, spent over half his life in jail. And he was coming up for potentially having parole. And he couldn't get over the fact he'd wasted 20 plus years of his life in jail. Plus also, whenever he'd been for parole, the, the system practices what I call defensive parole. In other words, the parole officer isn't looking for an excuse to let you go. He's looking for an excuse not to, because if you go out and then pr reduce uh, or produce another crime, mm. it looks bad on the person's career who let you go. So they're very defensive. You see the same thing happen in healthcare. Doctors these days, Matt, send people for second tests and, and other things that are unnecessary, not because it's to do with the health, but to cover all of the bases so they don't get sued for medical negligence. And it clogs up waiting lists, it spirals costs, and it's defensive medicine. So I sat with this guy first night that I met him. And he said, look, I keep going for parole. They turn me down because they don't want to let me go. And I'm going to spend my life in jail. And he was coming up for a, for a day release as like a introduction to parole. And if he if he's successful on a, a, a day release, then he goes to an overnight, you know, a month later, and then he's reassessed. Now, he'd not been out of jail for 22, you know, 22 years. So I said to him, I says, listen. What if you had a young kid who thought it was good to carry a knife come up to you and say, you know, oh, what do you think about carrying a knife? Is it a cool thing? What would you say? 
And of course, his reaction was almost horrific. He said, oh my God, I tell them, you know, don't be stupid. You know, it could go from feeling cool to, to lying in a pool, some guy lying in a pool of blood and you spending your life in jail in a heartbeat. You know, it was, it's just one of those things that you just don't do it. And he was so sincere. I mean, I stress tested him. He was so sincere. And I said, well, knife crime right now is a massive issue for, for many places in the world. And in England, yeah, unfortunately, 20% of the people that are stopped for carrying knives are under 13 years old. And I said, if you go to your local community center, arrange it. Yeah, when you leave for your day release and you go and, and have your family on the outside arrange this, go and put together a talk for the community in one of the rough areas from a rough area of the town where the kids can come and listen to this guy who's a, I mean, he's got a lot of street cred doing 22 years in jail far more than listening to your social worker or your police or your parent, different language for the street gangs, you know, and you do a talk on why you shouldn't carry a knife and you have a box there like an amnesty and drop the knife in the box and you get the press picturing you handing these knives into the, into the police station. And now you become the unofficial poster child for the reduction of knife crime. And instead of seeing your last 20 years as a waste of your life, you see it as your teacher training for going to help society. So instead of them viewing you as somebody suspiciously that maybe do it again because you're a murderer, now you see somebody as the you know, proponent for reducing knife crime. Now a probation officer needs an excuse not to let you out. Yeah? And you turn it around that way. And he now got purpose and meaning where he could use what it had happened, not as a, as a story to hide from, but as a way to give him the muscle to go and help others. Yeah, it's teacher training, 20 years in teacher training. And now rather than cost the taxpayer a million quid, yeah, he'll never be able to bring the person back who he killed, but maybe he can stop somebody else doing it. And boom, that, that was a complete transformation for him. Do you believe in the statement and the, or the philosophy that life is always happening for you, not to you? Of course, yeah. Albert Einstein said the most powerful question you could ask in your lifetime was do you or do you not live in a friendly universe? And that has a binary equation to it and two different lives. If you think you live in a hostile universe, then you're always going to be seeing things from a fear-based mentality because everything is separate from you. Everything with teeth can kill you. It's out to get you. You're out for yourself. It's egocentric. It's self-centered. It's fear-based. If you think you live in a friendly universe, uh, and personally, Matt, I, I'm, I'm an inverse paranoid. You know, I believe the entire universe is involved in a hidden and secret conspiracy to make me happy and successful. Right? That's my belief. And so you know, me going forward, I believe if the universe is friendly, then everything happens for you. But here's the challenge. There are two primary, I guess, graduation uh, events uh, or awarenesses that really help develop the emotional maturity in a person's life. I believe the first one, and we should teach this to kids before they leave school. The first one is when you finally become okay not being liked because if you're not okay, not being liked, you're going to spend your entire life trying to adapt to everybody else's approval strategy or your perception of it. And you're never going to be authentic. And you're going to be worried about how many likes you get on Facebook rather than speaking your tr truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the second one, oh, we're back, on. yeah. Yeah, the we're second good. one is probably what's most important. What's most important. The second demarcation in the maturation of the human psyche is where you finally realize and you grow up to understand that life is a growth-centric experience, not a comfort-centric experience. Yeah. 
everything in nature grows and contributes or it's taken out of the food chain. See, the strongest trees grow in the strongest winds, not the best soil. And we think we're different. So you know, if you want to become the best version of who you are, then pray for some strong winds and don't bitch about them when they show up. So you know, let's, let's look at it this way. Now, if you are in a situation where you're an, in the gym, but you don't have context for understanding you're in the gym, you're going to hide from this personal trainer guy that's trying to put you on the treadmill and make you run further than you think you can go. You're going to be avoiding, you're going to try and do the least amount of reps on the bar with the lightest weight because you don't know why you're there. But if you understand that you were born an athlete, you're here to go win the gold medal. Your personal trainer is life. And if you get an expensive personal trainer and you're not throwing up in 60 minutes, you want your money back. Right? So you know, you've got to have weight on the bar. That's what life's about. Your challenges, your adversity serves you. Yeah, you're here to grow. So if the universe is happening for you, but you don't like what's happening, you need to understand you're in the gym. Don't look at it from the muscle fiber being broken down, screaming at the brain, saying, stop, send pain signals, you're destroying me. Look at it from the athlete saying, I'm proud of busting out that last rep and can't lift my arms for an hour. That's a different life. Yeah, I love that. I love that philosophy. I want to dive into the 11 letters that you cover in the book. And I wanted to kind of just get you to walk us through why was there 11? Why were they private? And uh, what was the nature of these letters? Was it pretty much this kind of thing that you've just walked us through? Well, when I went in, I was halfway through one of my major coaching programs. It's called the Elite Mentorship Forum. I launch it every six months. And yeah, it's a it's an incredible six month journey of personal transformation for people, and I was halfway through that with a hundred students when, and we're just about to start the module on authenticity, when I get you know thrown in jail, what for people think is a seventeen million dollar fraud, right now of course nobody knew the context. I mean that that throws you a bit of a curveball into an authenticity module, right? And so. Uh, it was only when I came out that people understood the nature of what had happened and all of the allegations associated with it got dropped. They saw how I showed up. They saw how I got stitched up. Uh, and it was always you know, not only forgiven, but I had a lot more um, uh, loyalty from people that saw that you know, it's all right to walk your talk when you're on stage and the sun shining. Throw somebody in jail and see how they show up. Right? But I said to my students, I says, look, you can't change anything that has happened. I'm here. I'm in jail. Yeah, complaining about what's already done is stupid and futile. Yeah, moaning about the fact that milk is spilled isn't going to put it back in the bottle. So, yeah, I said, but here's a great opportunity for me to, to you know, what I call a graduation event, right? I'm, I'm going through a graduation event. Yeah, life will give you a graduation event. If you're a divorce coach, yeah, or if you're a relationship coach, expect problems in your relationship so that you can walk your talk to be able to solve them to prove you're qualified to talk to people. Right? Otherwise, you've got no right to do so. I said, so I'm in jail. I can't stop that. But what I will do is, you know, and I don't know where this, this river's going, but I'm going to write to you every two weeks and show you why I think I'm here. Yeah, I'm not a prisoner. I'm a secret agent of change. The universe has sent me here to be able to create, a, a, you know, change the system, help people, and let me show you how it works because this is live. This isn't a classroom. Theory does not cover the price of admission to the higher levels of greatness. So, you know, here I am, follow along. And so I wrote, you know, delineating all of the stuff that was happening, how I was, uh, you know, working my magic, 
uh, uh, the, the breakdown of the belief systems that I had, the tools I was using. You know, 30 years in personal growth this year. If I don't know my stuff by now, I need lessons. You know, I spent 15 years as a trainer with Tony Robbins, you know, working around the world with Tony. You know, if I don't learn something from that, you know, you shouldn't listen to me. So it was really just for my clients, basically a continuation of the coaching program. But instead of me doing it on Zoom like we're doing now live, I was doing it from uh, you know, a, a war zone in jail yeah, uh, and doing it for real. Yeah, let, let's, let's put this to the test. You know, you can talk a good game. Let's see if it works. And so you know, that was that. It was never meant for the public. Now, when I came out, I'd written 11 letters in the six months, yeah, every two weeks pretty much. And every, by the time I came out, my coaching clients turned around to me and said they'd learned more in the six months through the letters than the last two years following me around the world on stage and that I had to make them public. And I'm like, well, look, this is high-level stuff. This was not meant as a book. And they said, listen, publish it. It'll help a lot of people. And you know, that's my trigger. So I'm like, okay, so last year we published the 11 letters just in their raw form. And yeah, I'm very blessed. It went to a bestseller list in, four, in two hours. It made Amazon number one in four hours. We sold to 25 countries on the first day. And so far, if you read the reviews from every platform, including South Africa, Australia, America, Europe, it's changed the lives of pretty much everybody who's read it. Um, it's, it's very humbling, very, very blessed. One of the greatest things that came out of the experience. I love that story. Um, and I love the fact that you were able to turn this around and actually find, like, I don't know, like, I think this kind of thing is really rad. I think if I got arrested for any reason, I got thrown in the clink here, it would be hard for me to find the positive spin on that. But the fact that you did is, is really awesome. So I love that about, um, about this particular story. The 11 private letters, can you walk us through um, maybe just a few of them without, you can talk as deep as you want about them, but sure. what are some of the kind of key um, letters that you sent out? What was the gist of them? Right. Well, the first one was really just settling into jail and, and you know, uh, sharing what my thoughts are about where I'm going to take them on this journey, uh, what my philosophy is on how I can walk into jail smiling. Yeah, what belief systems do you need? What belief systems do you need to challenge or give up? How do you recontextualize the experience? Uh, the second letter started dealing with a lot of the, the fallout in the press because, you know, I had one guy who, yeah, wrote for some online rag that showed up in court. She was an IT reporter and he thought Sage versus HP, which was my, the people I was in court with, where he thought it was Sage software. And he just went off on one classic, typical, you know, keyboard warrior, you know, gutless reporter that you know, had a hidden agenda. And so there was a lot of fallout. Plus my fans didn't really know what was going on uh, as such around the world because I'd never given context. I expected to walk into court and walk out 10 minutes later with the judge laughing this thing out of court. Right? I never for a second thought it would actually go the way it did. And, and so I was addressing a lot of the psychological fallout with people and why society's favorite pastime is drama and how to avoid it. Yeah, and how you know, Facebook isn't the life you have. It's the life you want everybody else to think you have. It's so disingenuous and it breeds so much, uh, you know, sort of uh, independent or being uh, dependent on the good opinion of others. So how do you disassociate from that? How do I able to do what I do without worrying about what people talk about? Yeah. Now, the third letter is quite interesting. The third letter, I get very raw and real. I talk about the times I cried. I talk about the times I doubted myself. I talk about the times where I didn't know what if I was going to be able to make it through. Yeah, because yeah, we're talking about 1,300 of Britain, some of Britain's most dangerous violent criminals. Yeah, three deaths in one week was the worst week I was there. Attempted murders were every week. Blood on the floor was a daily occurrence. Um, yeah, and I'm the only non-criminal. I've never been arrested. 
right? Let's put this in context. This is a civil matter. And I mean, I, I take my hat off to life, the universe, because it found the only way to smuggle me into jail as a secret agent of change and smuggle me out again without even being accused of a crime. I mean, it's pretty, pretty smart, but they didn't treat me any separately. You know, I was, I was for all intensive purposes, the same as everybody else. So I, I in, in the third volume, I outline yeah, a lot of the, the, the realness, the, the, the violence, yeah, what it's really like, the, um, uh, and my reaction to it and how I got through the tough times. Uh, the fourth letter, I outlined what my ideas of how to transform the prison system are and why the psychology of it currently is flawed. Uh, the fifth letter is very short because I had so much pain in my hand. Bearing in mind, I'm handwriting these. There's no computers, no internet, no nothing. I'm handwriting this. You know, what the hell did we do before keyboards? Um, <laughs> uh, the sixth letter, I call it indigo versus black and white because I'm, I'm what I call an indigo child. Uh, indigo children have a natural aversion to institutional authority. I talk a lot about South Africa in my sixth letter and the work that I did com and comparing it to Mandela. And I'll share a brief thing here, right? In court, the opposition, when they searched my house with the civil action freezing order, they found a letter on uh, in my meditation room. I've got a meditation room at home. It's a private letter. And it was written by a woman in South Africa who I'd helped coach her and her family. And... She was so blessed, uh, so grateful for what I'd done. She wrote this beautiful, very touching letter, and she compared some of the work I was doing to help the people in South Africa, because I've ran my business school there many times, mm. to the work that Madiba had done. And it's probably the most humbling thing anyone has ever written. I remember crying when I read it. Now, the prosecution got this letter, and they said, oh, you're comparing yourself to Nelson Mandela, are you? Which I wasn't, yeah? Yeah, uh, she, she uh, is that because you think you're above the law? And they tried to spin it that way, right? And you know, I I did a lot of work. I worked with Mandela's family in South Africa, yeah, uh, extensively. Uh, the first ever Mandela Day, the year after his death, I was at Mandela's house with his family. I granted many scholarships to through the Mandela Legacy Foundation to people to come to my business school in Johannesburg. And I, I've got a strong history with that. And for them to try to really manipulate that, to try to tell me it was down to ego on a private letter that I'd never share with anybody else, really you know, got my indigo nature really high. And I was doing some comparisons to some of the lessons. For example, one of the lessons that Mandela learned early on, I should have learned, which was pick your battles. See, Mandela... Because of who he was, when he went to uh, King Jokintaba and was looked after, essentially by the king, was groomed to be a, a leader, he got privileges that a lot of South Africans, uh, uh, black South Africans, didn't have, which was he got a, a good education. He got to go to Fort Hare University. Now, for those that don't know, he stood for student elections. He was quite a, a, a popular figure at that university. But at the same time as the student elections, there was a protest and a boycott of the elections as a protest over the quality of the food at the university, something that I could definitely empathize with in jail. <laughs> now, uh, so he was elected student president, but he refused to take the position because on principle, he said not all of the people voted. Now, Alexander Kerr was one of the principals at the University of Fort Hare in South Africa, was a very sort of you know, rules-driven, inflexible guy. And what he did was he said, no, you must take the position. And Mandela refused. He says, if you don't take it, you're out of here. So Mandela walks away. Now, he thought on the surface he was being true to his principles. But the king then pointed out, listen, you just traded off what was relatively minor you know, point for a quality education. 
yeah, in chess terms, you give up, a, you know, yeah, you, you won a pawn, but you give up a queen. Yeah. Pick your battles. So I learned about that and I outlined that in chapter six as to, you know, how that relates to most of us in real life. Now, my favorite letter out of all of them is, is chapter seven. I call it a wing and a prayer. The seventh letter is very special because I broke my foot while I was in jail. It was my own fault. I, I tripped over a landing uh, and I heard that I rolled over my body weight carried and I heard the bone snap. Now, I got no drugs. I got no painkillers. I got no ice, no crutch. And I was begging for an x-ray for six weeks. I begged for an x-ray and I got nothing. Eventually, and this is classic prison politics. You'll like this. Eventually, I got a knock at the door. I got handcuffed, right? Double handcuffed as a civil prisoner and handcuffed to an officer. And I could put me in a taxi. First time I'd seen the sun in like four months, pretty much. They took me out to the hospital and I'm on the x-ray table, finally going to have my x-ray. I'm still double handcuffed. Yeah, the officer's got to wear a lead vest standing next to me. I'm handcuffed to the officer. And I'm trying to move my ankle, still handcuffed to this person. And the nurse says, just move it so we get a good shot of the ankle. I'm like, oh, no, it's not my ankle. It's the outside metatarsal bone on my foot that broke. Look, my toes are black, right? Oh, we can't x-ray that. Well, what do you mean? Well, the prison doctor wrote down ankle. I'm like, I never saw a prison doctor. Right? Oh, well, the prison doctor on the form has written ankle. I can only x-ray your ankle. I'm like, I'm on the x-ray bench. I've been waiting six weeks. Move my foot three inches, please. No. Anyway, the good news is my ankle was fine. <laughs> you know? But anyway, I get back and they finally give me some anti-inflammatories. Now I'm queuing up. I don't get let out of myself for, for medication because I don't take medication. The prison zone statistics show that 25%, one in, sorry, 20%, one in five prisoners in Pentonville are on antipsychotic medication and at least that, if not more, on antidepressants. So a lot of the prison gets let out for meds in the morning. So because they gave me a prescription for some anti-inflammatories for my foot, finally, I get let out. So I'm standing in the med line, never stood in the med line before. There's a guy in front of me, looks like he's in a bad shape. You can tell the signs. Anyway, I build up some rapport. Yeah, I'm there as the secret agent of change. And I ask him what the, what's going on. Turns out, he's, he says, look, I, I wanted to get some stronger antidepressants because they're not working. But I just, anyway, it ain't going to work. I know it's not. And by the way, I probably need to say goodbye because today's the day I'm going to kill myself. Now, 90% of suicides are a scream for love. They're a scream for help. They're a scream for attention. This wasn't. And you can stress test that. There was no, there was no, there was resignation in his voice. There was, there was no caring about what I thought about what he wanted. There was complete apathy, right? And resignation. This, this was a real possibility. And I asked some questions and this was going to happen. And, and at that point, I've got 10 minutes maximum for how I engage this guy before he gets his meds and I never see him again. He's on a different wing. How do I stop somebody committing suicide in 10 minutes permanently? Because you can change anybody's state in the moment. I can, I can inspire somebody in the moment. But when you go back to your cell and you think the same thoughts, right, that you were triggered previously and you're faced with the same out, outer world conditions, you're going to then regress back into the same thinking patterns that cause you to want to check out. So I've got 10 minutes maximum to do a suicide intervention that changes that permanently. How do you do that? So chapter seven, I break that down. How do you recontextualize the experience of suicide so you link more pain to suicide? Because with suicides, they all have one thing in common. No compelling future. 
Yeah, they're faced with pain of their situation right now and nothing they can do about it. You turn left, there's pain. You turn right, there's pain. Back pain, forward pain. The only way out of pain, the only way out of pain is to kill yourself. That's usually the mindset of a suicide. And so how do you provide the, the, a compelling future or how do you provide the context for one and then link to suicide more pain than they thought they would get? So if someone's authentic about killing themselves because they don't have a compelling future and you give them an option for one, suicide's no longer an option. Uh, so I break that down in detail and I've had so many people read that letter and either cry or I had somebody write into me while I was in jail because I, I posted out one of my students wrote in and said that it just gave them closure on the fact that their dad had committed suicide because now they understood what went on in the mind of somebody. Yeah, and and that's, that, that was a, a powerful letter. So yeah, and then... Uh, letter eight uh, talks about Operation Starlight, where I managed to get model stars in almost every cell of the, the jail, which created this entire movement. That there's letters in the back of the book, Matt, from not just the prisoners, but letters from the prison officers, letters from the governors, um, basically showing and telling people what I did and validating that. And one of the prison officers had been a prison officer for 27 years. He wrote a letter. It's in the, it's in the book, basically saying that in 27 years, he'd never seen anybody impact the prison in such a short amount of time. And that 70% of the prison through reading model stars had basically just completely shifted their mindset. It's very, very humbling, very touching. So yeah, it's, and, and it goes on. I mean, that's, that's, I'm, I'm very proud of what, what, what put together really. It sounds incredible. I am, there's so much I, I, I could wanted to dive into there, but I suppose the, before we do that, I want to get into the prison system because this whole thing about you breaking your foot and then, you know, the fact that um, the, the antidepressants are there and, you know, it's filled with drugs and all this kind of stuff and basically how you're actually criminalized further once you're actually criminalized, if that makes sense. Um, and so, like, the reluctance to the defensive manner in which paroles are given um, and how, you know, and, like, you understand that, but you mentioned earlier that you have a, you've, you have a vision for what a new... Um, prison system or model could look like, um, if that's the accurate way to describe it. But what what are are the alternatives? Because it seems to me that prisons throughout the world are run pretty much the same way. Correct. And and, and one of the things I'm very happy is that one of the uh, one of the first things we have to understand is there is a difference between raising somebody's skill set and shifting their mindset. You see, prison does put a bit of focus on trying to educate people. You know, there's an education wing. But if you teach, if you give somebody skills without shifting their mindset, all you're doing is giving more ways to commit the same crimes or avoid detection. You're giving them skills with which to execute the same behavior. So if you're talking about rehabilitation, you need to start addressing the mindset. And this is why I wrote Model Stars. Model Stars should be read by probably everybody rather than just the prisoners. But I designed a new prisoner welcome booklet which was part of my you know, um, way of wanting to transform the prisons but through what I called Operation Chrysalis, as in like, you know, caterpillar to butterfly. Yeah. And uh, I designed that, I produced it, and that's now being uh, actually put in prisons across the UK. There's four prisons that have taken that up. And also Australia, I was on the, uh, a call with one of the head of corrections from New South Wales that wants to take that booklet and roll it out across Australia. It's taking such an impact of reducing violence, reducing uh, drug use, uh, increasing you know, sort of uh, relations between yeah, prisoners and wings. Uh, and part of that book, it also gives hope. There's references in there. There's a section called Famous People Who Went to Jail and What Happened Next. And you've got, obviously, the, the, the classics like Nelson Mandela. You've got the classics like, you know, sort of Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther. But you've also got people like Mark Wahlberg, 
uh, who you know went to jail for for, for violence and yeah, ended up becoming obviously a big Hollywood star and director. Um, another example. So they've got hope. They've got references. Um, but the prison, the biggest challenge with the prison system right now, especially in the privatized model, is this. Business always finds a way to survive. That's the commercial imperative for business. The, pr- the public sector don't have that you know, necessity because the government bails them out if they spend too much money. Right? But businesses don't have that luxury. So the power of entrepreneurial thinking is a massive you know, sort of tool that business refines and hones. Now, here's the challenge when it comes to prisons. When they privatize the prisons, especially in the UK, the criteria with which the government allocate the contracts is based upon budget. In other words, one of the prisons that got the, the uh, uh, deal to privatize was because it said it would save the government 15 million pounds over a period of time. Now, if you're then also then paid 40-odd thousand pounds per year per prisoner, you've just put two things together that is a recipe for disaster. You are encouraging underspending because the fastest way for a business to save money is to cut spending, not invest in long-term efficiency, which is the proper way to do it. You take companies like Apple, they invest a lot in R&D. But most companies don't. They, they, they have a cash flow problem. They cut spending. And then you incentivize overcrowding because you're being paid per prisoner. So the entrepreneurial genius for the prisons is being harnessed in a way to save money and increase customers, right, uh, by cutting spending and overcrowding. I mean, no, no business on the high street would last 10 seconds with that model. Yeah. But that's how the prisons are. So instead... Why don't you harness the power of entrepreneurial thinking in a way that allows business to find a way to survive by linking the bonuses or part payments for the for uh, for the prison but prisoners' budgets to what you actually want to have happen, which is to cut reoffending. So if you say to the prisoner, right, you're going to get thirty thousand pounds a year per prisoner. But you'll also, we're going to track these prisoners. And if they reoffend within two years, you get nothing. If they, re-off- if they don't reoffend within two years, you trigger the other $10,000. Business will find a way. Business will say, okay, if that's now the game to collect the money, let's figure out a way to go collect the money. And they'll start looking at you know, different prisons, like in Norway, where reoffending rates drop through the floor because they know how to treat prisoners in a different way. They'll look for models that support that rather than models that support how do we get more money through overcrowding and cutting funding. It's not difficult. You get the point. I do get the point. Um, it's funny how profit is a, and greed is a quintessential human condition that fucks up pretty much every system known to man. Well, if you talk about levels of consciousness, yeah, you, you talk about you know, egocentrism, you know, again, when we, when one of the demarcations again of the, the emotional journey of emotional maturity for a human being is the day where they realize it's not all about them. Yeah. You take sexual maturity for a man begins when he realizes it's not just about his orgasm. Right. And most men you know, don't, don't figure that out until you know, <laughs> yeah, it's too late. Until much later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, when, when you start realizing it's not about you, yeah, it's about what you can do. And we've got a lot of people these days, Matt, that are more socially conscious. You do have generations now coming through that, that yeah, are looking at social entrepreneurship. How can we add value, not how can we get money? 
And that's a mindset that in South Africa, for example, so many people in South Africa, because of such of the history of poverty and how ripe poverty is, most people are looking for money. They're looking to get money. How do we make money? Wrong mindset. Money is nothing more when you understand it, or it's nothing more than a byproduct or a consequence of adding value. You get money by doing something of value or giving something of value, product, service, whatever it is, first. Going to chase money is like sitting in front of the fire on a cold day saying, hey, listen, give me some heat, then I'll go fetch you some wood. Yeah, that doesn't work. It's like going to the gym saying, give me the strength and I'll lift the weights. That doesn't work, right? Oh, give me, give me some money. I want to make money. No, go focus on becoming a person of value and you'll look over your shoulder one day and think, wow, where did that money come from? But start chasing money is the thing and you'll chase your tail, which is why so many people don't have it. So when you realize that business is not about greed and profit and what you can get you know, at the expense of trying to screw everything else, including the planet, but you start raising your consciousness, not raising your balance sheet, your balance sheet will follow because you're here to say, how can I add value? And unfortunately, most people still are trying to learn that lesson. And yeah, the, the world is in a state where we see the obvious consequence of that. Absolutely agree with you. I want to talk to you very quickly about becoming more self-aware. It's something that um, I was writing about for in my book, which is coming out sometime this year, whenever it's finished. <laughs> but I was, can't wait to read it. Yeah, thanks, man. But um, I I was writing about you know self-awareness and you know talking about becoming self-aware when you're thinking about death and your death um, and how death holds up a mirror to you. Um, in terms of one's purpose, your why, what motivates you. Um, and it gets you to the truth a lot faster than trying to work it out on your own in, in many other scenarios. If you're trying to adopt this self-awareness, self-awareness rather journey or this journey of consciousness that you, you're trying to become more conscious of who you really are and what really lights you up and how you can become more authentic, how you find the words to really express your own model of the world and do that in a way that you're comfortable with what anybody thinks. And to your earlier point, uh, even if they don't like you, like you're cool with that, you know. Um, what advice do you have for the entrepreneur? Um, you mentioned Nelson Mandela and the work that you've done here and obviously your elite coaching uh, clients over in, in, in the UK. But when you talk about self-awareness, like how does one begin to evolve on that journey how where does one start and what are some practical uh, ideas or steps one can take to become more self-aware and ultimately more conscious of who they really are great question i, I would say there's a couple of uh, practical steps straight off the bat the first is to recognize what's not working yeah so many people are not happy where they are right now and so what do they do they complain about what it is or they try something new that they don't really shift anything else. The fastest way for you to be able to shift is to upgrade your peer group. Uh, we operate under the law of conformity. If you hang out with 10 recreational drug users, I've got news for you. You're probably going to become the 11th. If you hang out with 10 people that come from a place of you know how we can, self-motivated, not why we can't, you're probably going to become the 11th. It's the law of conformity. So the first question is check your peer group. Who do you hang with? You know, love your family, choose your friends. And if you don't have anyone in proximity, we live in a world now where yeah, I'm currently hanging out with you, even though you know, I'm in Acapulco in Mexico right now and you're in South Africa. Now, uh, hang out with who do you listen to? You know, what, what are you feeding your mind with? What well are you drinking from? The well of you know, why life doesn't work or the well of possibility? 
right? There's no excuse today. Why? Because in the age of information, ignorance is a choice. Case closed. So upgrade your peer group. Ask better questions. Questions are the steering wheel of the mind. Asking the difference between, you know, what's wrong with me versus, you know, you know what could I learn from this is the difference between a life of, you know, of possibility versus a life on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, if you come from a place of saying, I don't like where I'm at right now, do something about it. Upgrade your peer group. Study the lives of people who have done what you want to do or walk the path you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's called looking at advice, not opinion. Everybody else has got an opinion, mm-hmm. but who do you want to listen to first and foremost? Mm-hmm. Only listen to the people that have produced the result that you want to produce. They're qualified to talk to you about it, and most of them will. Or read their books or listen to their podcasts. Yeah, or yeah, there's no excuse today. And get a bigger why. If your why is about you and what you can get and what house you want to live in and what how much money you want to make, I've got news for you. Life isn't going to line up behind you to try to reward that. When your why is, how can I give my gift to the world? How can I discover my gift so that I can give it to the world? How can I make a difference? How can I go and impact somebody and put a smile on somebody else's face? Right? The universe starts lining up. And doors will open that you couldn't open before. So, you know, and when it comes to death, Matt, get an empowering context for it. I've got news for you. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right? But death isn't the opposite of life. Death is simply the opposite of birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you understand that consciousness is who you are, not this body. You're not your body. You have a body. I cut your arm off. You lose 15% of your body, but you don't lose 15% of you. Right? So... That you have a mind. You're not your mind. You are consciousness. And the only thing you can do in this life is one thing, experience. I'll even go as far as to say the only thing you can experience is the act of experiencing. Everything else is noise and story. Now, when you sell this old car and you go buy a new one, or when you finish the final scene in your movie and you go pick up a new script to go you know, film the next movie, whatever metaphor you want to use, right? where are you going to go? Well, where were you before you picked up the script for this movie? And if you want to go put a religious overtone on that, if you want to put a spiritual overtone on that, if you want to put an atheist over, I don't care. Go figure out your label, but get an empowering context for something that's going to happen. Otherwise, you'll be you know, disempowered by it. So, yeah, upgrade your peer group, ask better questions, get comfortable with death. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> cool. Uh, but I do love what you said, especially that thing around in, the, in a world of information, you know, uh, ignorance is a choice. And that word choice is so important because decisions are your ultimate power. Um, and when you, for me, it's like when you decide that you're going to be that thing or that person, like the rest, will, it's like the universe just gets out your way and the rest is just details. Do you know what I mean? You don't need to worry about the how. You, you only need to decide, but you need to decide fully. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge. It's like you get people who say they're going to do things, but then they don't. Um, they promise to do things to themselves and then they don't follow through. Um, and so that's, that's just a really powerful idea about choice. Um, and I want to end the show, uh, just with this question. Why do you do what you do, Peter? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I have an identity statement that, you know, identities define us. You know, you're, uh, you're the host of the Matt Brown show, Brown show. That that comes with a certain sense of of you know responsibility, impetus, purpose, desire, yeah. Uh, and we all have different identities, and I'll share mine with you. Um, yeah, I am a divine and guided soul who acts as an open channel for God's love, yeah, a powerful agent of positive change who was born to reveal the greatness in others. 
that's what I do. That's who I am. That's why I do it. Yeah, I, I learned way too many you know, years that focusing on myself was a hamster wheel to stress and nowhere. Yeah, so I now want to go help people. Yeah, I've got a new focus on what's called the stress-proof professional. Try to help people in in uh, in business stop chasing a life of success and understanding the difference between that and a life of fulfillment. Yeah, it's it's understanding that you know I don't want to spend ten years um, giving up my relationship. Uh, giving up my health, losing connection with my kids so that maybe I can earn enough money to pay for my divorce, hire a personal trainer to get my health back and buy my kids loads of stuff so they love me again. That ain't why we're here. Go add value, go give your gift to the world and go love yourself in the process and have fun. And if I can help leave a little thumbprint on somebody's life, then I'm very honored and humbled to be able to have done that to be able to help. Peter, you're an absolute rock star, dude. Wow, legend. Thanks for being on the Matt Thank Brown you, Show, bud, and for giving me the opportunity to help you to help more people. Hey, and that's why I love you too, Matt. Thank you so much. What you're doing is incredible. I've checked out the show. You're a legend yourself, and it's a privilege to be on your show, my friend. Thanks, Peter. All the best. Go love yourself, people. Ciao. This edition of the Map Round Show is brought to you by NetworkSpace.co.za. In fact, our studios are here in building number four at NetworkSpace up in Johannesburg. These guys have made us a huge deal, have really bent over backwards to give us the kind of service that most exciting businesses deserve. If you want more information about NetworkSpace, you can actually come and check out our studio. We are always open to meet new entrepreneurs and business owners from around the country, and you can do that right here at networkspace.coza. Thanks for checking out the Map Round Show, guys. And if you'd like to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.